Hey everyone, I'm Rabbi Nick Renner. It's great to be with you all in podcast world as well as here live at KI uh, as we conclude this year's session, this year's series of Talmud stories. Um, we've got a long one today, so I'm going to rush through a little bit of our uh, usual preamble, the piece about what is the Talmud. Does anybody want to say a few words? What is the Talmud? We're going to do it quickly today. Well, it's a collection of stories, and it's a collection of laws. Collection of stories and laws, very good. And it explores the Torah, but around the experience of the Torah is are all the rabbinic writings of, of the great rabbinic age, including all the dissenting opinions. Excellent. Um, uh, it's the assembly of rabbinic Judaism, the creation of rabbinic Judaism, ex- expounding on Torah. It's the longest written work of the, in the ancient world at 63 volumes because it, it preserves all the dissenting opinions. There is a, uh, a Yerushalmi Talmud and a Bavli Talmud, those two uh, different ones, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, we know it is two works, the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah is the earlier part of it concluded at the year 220. The Gemara is the latter half of it, which continues the discussion in Aramaic, and it wraps up around the year 500 or so, although the last uh, layer of it is something of a mystery, the layer that we call the Stum, which is this sort of anonymous final redaction layer to it. Anybody want to add anything else to it? Our preamble? I know I'm moving quickly, but that's because we've got such a rich piece to look at today. Sounds good. All right, so... Today we are looking at Rabban Gamliel and the Beit Midrash. For those of you who remember the Oven of Achnai, that story um, where somebody winds up killed at the end of it after this whole struggle between Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos and Rabbi Yehoshua and the other sages, Rabban Gamliel was still the head of the Beit Midrash, the head of the rabbinic study hall, the rabbinic uh, house. He was what was called the Nasi, which was a sort of term for president. He was essentially their political leader as well. Um, he's a really prominent and interesting figure, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him, but we're going to see a great power struggle take place here today. So, with that, I want to encourage you, invite you, to learn in Chavruta, which is our classical, the classic rabbinic mode of learning, learning with a Chaver. It's from that same word for friend, Chavruta being this Aramaic piece. So, I want to invite you to get in groups of two or three to work through this together. Um, We're here joined again um, by our student Rabbi Daniel Sher. He's here helping out, and uh, We're both here to take part in all of this, so if you have questions, feel free to raise your hand. Again, you're reading really this first layer to get through the story. We're going to go through line by line in great detail. As I always want to point out, don't worry if it's confusing, if it's strange, if it doesn't make sense. It's supposed to be a little bit strange and convoluted, and we're going to go through after the Chavruta study line by line with a chance for everybody to ask questions and go through it in great detail. So, with that, I invite you to turn to your neighbor or neighbors, turn in twos or threes in Chavruta, and enjoy. Okay, welcome back in podcast land to, we just are resuming from our break to go over this Nechavruta study. Now we're going to go through it in the bigger group. Go ahead. Grant, you had a question. So this is from the tractate forward. Is that uh, the, the tractate that talks about prayers? Or? Blessings, exactly. Um, just to sort of frame where this sort of Yes. So it is about blessings and brachot. 
Um, you don't want to be too literal in, in assuming that that tractate covers exactly this material. They get into all kinds of tangents and go in all kinds of directions. So um, some of them are more specific than others. Some of the ones, um, like we see a mention of tractate Eduyot on the next page. That one is much more closely about laws and statutes regarding Eduyot testimonies and Edim witnesses. But Brachot meanders all over the place. Um, so, yes, so there is correlation, but it's not truly, like, strictly on subject. Other questions before we get started in our close reading? Yes, I have yes. a question. The Talmud is the commentaries of the rabbis, and the arguing among the rabbis as to what means what. Yes. Um, are they all equally... Loose-ended and... Are all the stories? Yes. The stories vary. Some of them are more tight narrative. We saw throughout some of the story arc that we just completed about the destruction of the temple that some of those were much more straightforward and easy to understand, whereas um, some of them are more convoluted. And do they mean for it to be convoluted for a reason? So I do want to emphasize that it's not clear that they're intending for it to be convoluted, but they do treat this discussion in these texts as being fairly elite and elitist. Um, it's sort of intended for the rabbinic elites. Um, these are the people who are the most engaged. So they may not be writing um, to intentionally obfuscate the matter. They're not writing in code, but nor are they trying to make it accessible necessarily. Um, did you want to add to that? Yeah, if you're Rabbi Nick at the beginning talking about the Stam being that last layer. So one of the reasons that we don't know exactly where the Stam falls in timing is that it was so convoluted that somewhere there is an editor who wants to stop that. And so that's why a lot of times there's that Stam, which means like here's here's just the way it is. Here, well, no, Stam is more of the... This is the conclusion. Right. Yes, the anonymous voice, the redactor. And so a lot of that, it seems that other people were frustrated with this loose-ended part and didn't want to leave so much up to uh, interpretation. So they attempted to with the Stam. The nice thing is because we can see the difference, we still get to look at all the different interpretations. Well, so you need another set of rabbis to undermine and understand the, the rabbis. <laughs> I don't know if it's mean or just over the centuries, but yes, another Develop. set comes along. Yeah, and so, of course, then you have Rashi and you have other people who add their commentaries to it and the whole thing continues to expand. So, yeah, Susan. Um, is this uh, historic, maybe not in a literal sense of historic, but were all these rabbis alive at the same time, or is this a case of mixing in people who maybe were 200 years before or 100 years after? So, generally speaking, they play fast and loose with the timing historically. Um, as it says in Torah, Ein Mukdam Umelchar Torah, there's no such thing as early or late in Torah, and they're not fixated on history in the academic Western sense. I would suggest that what they're manufacturing here is, uh, rather than history, it's memory. It's their memory of, and their experiences, and their uh, tales, so that, yes, there's historical overlap and correlation, but I wouldn't look to them for necessarily direct uh, history as much as they're relaying their memory. But these five rabbis were... 
all alive at the same time? Um, approximately? They were close. They're within about a generation or two of one another. And it's not totally historically clear what were the exact birth and death dates of all these rabbis either. Some of them we know much more uh, clearly, like Rabbi Akiva, who was killed sometime between 133 and 135 as a result of uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt and his role in that. Other ones, it's not quite as clear. So that's why I'm hesitant to say they are exactly alive at the same time. Is we don't have an exact like exact dates on Rabban Gamliel are tricky, even though we know of some of the events going on in his life. Does it really matter? Doesn't matter to you. To not doesn't matter to them. That's you right. Always, you, you always quote your teacher. Mm-hmm. Who you learn from, so it doesn't matter what the timeline is. Correct. You quote your lineage. You uh, give uh, respect to that, and you anchor yourself as being rooted with other people, your teachers, your ancestors, all of that. But the exact history of it isn't. Um, that's not what they're so concerned with in the matter. Is this, yeah, Tom. Uh, is this all about a debate about how democratized uh, Judaism should be? Let's come back to that question. That's one of the big ones, actually, that the whole thing is about, but I want to come back to that once we've unpacked the story a little bit more. It's absolutely one of the operative questions. Any more pressing questions, or shall we go jump into our close reading? Let's do it. Does somebody want to start off for us? The sages taught there was an incident involving a student who came before Rabbi Yehoshua. The student said to him, Is the evening prayer optional or obligatory? Rabbi Yehoshua said to him, optional. The student then came before Rabbi Gamliel and said to him, is the evening prayer optional or obligatory? Rabbi Gamliel said to him, obligatory. The student said to Rabbi Gamliel, but didn't Rabbi Yehoshua tell me that the evening prayer is optional? Rabbi Gamliel said to the student, Wait until the masters of shields enter the bet midrash. Okay, so we'll just take that much to start with. Um, questions about this piece that we saw here. The masters of shields. Basically, the sages. So it seems like a flowery, glorifying term where they're considering themselves warriors of Torah, the shield bearers, the standard bearers. So that one. At the bottom of the page. Yeah, we have a footnote there too. <laughs> so yes, they are. Uh, yeah, they're the, the warriors of Torah. It's kind of a funny way in which they they use all of these metaphors to talk about themselves as um, real valiant heroes and doing battle, and they talk about their rabbinic arguments as swords sharpening swords, um, when what they're doing is a certain kind of rhetoric. So it's funny that they, they glorify it in certain ways. Or, but weren't they living in a pretty contentious time when they had to contend with the Romans? They were not real friendly to They were living in a time where there were actual warriors. This is correct. Roman legionaries and the such. So a lot of these people were actually warriors too, weren't they? Probably not. The rabbis would have reflected, these would have been political, spiritual, religious, communal leaders, elites again. The people who were doing a lot of the fighting, we saw them in previous sessions, um, such as the Birioni or the Sicari. Uh, there were all kinds of militants and fighters, but the rabbis were less involved with that project, in fact. Um, good question. Other questions about this piece. Uh, Rabban Gamliel, he's one of... He's the only person I know of who ever used this title, Rabban. And we do know that he is the first to use this title, Rabban. He's sort of an outlier in that way. Um, not clear where that title came from, but he uses it for himself. He's a grandson of Hillel, 
Hillel the Elder, that famous uh, Rav that we have, one of the first generations of these sages, he's a grandson of him. So he comes from this great dynasty, in fact, uh, and from the rabbinic standpoint. Yes? What's the difference between a Rav and a Rabbi? And a Rabban. And Rabban. Not clear on what Rabban means because the title seems to have just come out of thin air. Rav is a master. It's also a teacher. Rabbi, from what I understand, was a sort of a Babylonian corruption of it. Um, but you could also drush it as Ribi, Rabbi, my Rav. Rav of mine. Are you insulting a Rav if you address him as Rabbi? No. They get used interchangeably, we see. And then we have other figures, characters, who get called actually just Rav and Rava and Rabba. Um, these are all characters. Um, what that? Rev. And Rev winds up getting used as a term. Um, that's a more recent term that we get more like toward mystery. the medieval era. What's that? Isn't that look more like mystery? Exactly. Um, it's not a... Uh, Ecclesiastical term. No, nor is it the term of antiquity. And Did you want to add to mo- something? Modern yeah. language wise, Rav is Hebrew. Correct. So, like, if you were to call a rabbi up for an aliyah, they would say Rav and then the name, not rabbi. Harav yeah, is what it's called. It's the strict Hebrew translation of it. Um, in Israel, it's funny, I hear them both get used. Rav, and I also hear, like, Rebbe and Rabbi, I, I hear all kinds of versions of it, um, which is interesting to me. Because then you have Rebbe as a term, which we get out of the Hasidic uh, medieval, sort of late medieval experience. Um, anyway, an interesting digression on titles. Other questions? Regard- yeah, go ahead. Well, it just seemed to me like, like they were letting one really irritating student bring down part of the whole enterprise. Because I know, like, when I was a TA, I really hated students who asked me for a question, I gave them an answer, and then they went to the professor and asked the same question. It's an interesting thing that this student did this. Yeah. (laughs) That said, we also have that rabbinic ideal of... Machloket l'shem shemayim, the idea of an argument for a, for the sake of heaven. So they're not afraid to debate one another on holy things. Um, that's considered fair game it when it's sacred like text and the like. We're debating. It just seems that this student was really did it in an obnoxious way. way. I yeah. see it as a generational thing. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Say more. That there, this young whippersnapper is coming in and challenging authority, mm. and that's certainly part of. Jewish tradition. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great drosh as well. Uh, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> the the last sentence struck me mm-hmm. because uh, you know, Robin says, "Hey, wait till the bad guys arrive." He, he's got something already on his mind that that. That's called that passing the Well, <laughs> it's called he's got a, another a, a, another motive. Yeah. Uh, that, he's waiting for an audience. He's, yeah. he's, waiting, he's waiting to bring the big gun out in, to, with, with everybody who wants to be present. That's an qu- interesting question about waiting to... Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because he could make the pronouncement on his own, but clearly he wants to do this in a very public way. Absolutely. Um, did you want to contribute? Well, I just realized the student is the only unnamed person. So there, there might be something very much there as well that because of what's going to happen from this student sparking this argument has some pretty major ramifications. So they may have wanted to, like, I'm not sure if maybe that was intended to be more <coughs> honest. 
Good question. Is, is the representative great? Right. Yeah. What is the meaning of the anonymous student in that way? Because we do have names left, right, and center through this, but not the student. Excellent question. Let's keep that front and center as we continue on. Who wants to pick up reading? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, when the Masters of Shields entered, the student stood before everyone present and asked, is the evening prayer optional or obligatory? Rabban Gamliel replied, obligatory. Rabban Gamliel then turned to the sages, who are clearly the Masters of Shields, and asked, is there any person who disputes this matter? The Rabbi Yehoshua said to him, no, no one disagrees. Rabban Gamliel said to Rabbi Yehoshua, but was it not in your name that they told me that the evening prayer is optional? Okay, questions about this. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it, I mean, we'll see later, but already here it seems that like Rabbi, or Rabbi Gamliel clearly has had an agenda in waiting for the shields to get there, which was to call out Rabbi Yehoshua. He set a trap. To set a trap for him. He, he said, you know, I'm, I, if I just correct you now and call you out here, that's the end of it. But if I wait for everyone to be assembled, then it's on record that you made this pretty big mistake. I mean, mm-hmm. the difference between saying something is optional or obligatory is, uh, you know, huge. So you said the politics. Yeah, you know, it, it's like a lot of, of infighting, which, again, infighting in, in the congregation is... Uh, long history part of Jewish history. <laughs> except this one. <laughs> <laughs> All peace and rainbows and sunshine. I'll tell you what Abe Winokur once told me. The, uh, Go ahead. The founding uh, rabbi of KI, Abe yeah, Winokur, well, yes. He told, me that, uh, he told me the joke about the rabbi that was in the hospital, seriously ill. Mm-hmm. The president of the congregation came to visit with a get well card. Mm-hmm. He said, this card is from the board of directors. We want you to get well. The vote was 15 to 14. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> A great commentary. It's good that we have our contemporary commentary on these communal matters as well. Mickey, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> when it comes to uh, interpretations, every community has their minhag. And I imagine it um, comes from rabbis who have their opinions, too. Mm-hmm. I, I went in, uh, I called a rabbi uh, and asked him a question because uh, I wanted to know what the halakha was. Mm-hmm. And he gave me an answer. And it, oh, I thanked him and I said, oh, you know, rabbi such and such had a different answer. This is what we do. Yeah. Which is why a lot of rabbis, if you're asking them for halakha, will say consult your local rabbi. Because different communities have different traditions. It's absolutely correct. And what's the weight of halakha, Jewish law, versus minhag, or custom? Um, These have varying weights as well. Um, So it's a fascinating question. Yeah, go ahead. There's there's a quote from Groucho Marx that I love in situations like this, which is, he said... These are my morals. If you don't like them, I have others. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I love it. All right. Who wants to continue reading? Uh, uh, Rabbi Gamliel said to him, Yehoshua, stand on your feet and they will testify against you. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Yehoshua stood on his feet and said, If I was alive and the student was dead, the living can contradict the dead, and I could deny issuing that ruling. Now that I am alive and he is alive, how can the living contradict the living? I have no choice but to admit that I said it. 
questions about this? Pretty straightforward. Well, he should, go ahead. He sure didn't want to just come out and say, "Man, I told that student something, and I wish I hadn't." You know what's interesting it's is hard. he doesn't say that he wish I hadn't said it. No. He said he's compelled to admit it, but he's he doesn't regret offering his first ruling. But yeah. it seems it could it be obligatory in some places and not in others. Could or be. Is he just bowing to the other opinion? That could be too. But also this idea of just being able to contradict the dead simply because they are dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't argue with you. They can't argue with you, but that that really invalidates you know the entirety tradition. of tradition that came before them. They're basically saying that everything that was before us we can just do away with, which was a lot of the priestly Judaism mm -hmm. now that they're moving into the rabbinic Judaism. Interesting. Um, but isn't he also saying, don't be you? He could be saying that too. That's absolutely a possibility. One of the things I like to offer to this group is to pay attention to what your movie version of this is. To what, this is what my Rob Steve Sager taught me, is that... Uh, Pay attention to what this looks like or sounds like. What is the tone of voice? What's the setting? Who are these people? Because there's a lot of ambiguity here. And that ambiguity is an invitation to have different readings and interpretations. And other people may have totally valid interpretations as well from the exact same piece. It's part of the beauty of the ambiguity of it. So pay attention to your movie version of it in this reading. There's a certain sense of humor here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There, they, you do see a sense of humor shine through with the rabbis from time to time. It's interesting to see as well. Um, and so that could be humorous. Um, or he could. Voice. Yeah. We can't hear their tone of voice. Exactly. Um, and so this is one where maybe he's saying it facetiously, or maybe he's saying it resentfully. Maybe he's saying, I would have lied to you if I could have, you know? It could have been totally disrespectful in that way. But he's saying, well, since, you know, I'm caught on it, I have no choice. So there are a lot of ways of reading this and hearing, um, Rabbi Yoshua's voice in it. Other questions before we continue? Why are they suggesting here that the living can't contradict the living? I mean, it happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time that the living contradicts the living. Any thoughts about that? It's a curious thing to say. People lie about a situation all the time. They have courts. They had courts back then where they would have had competing testimonies. But I think with the rabbis, there's a hierarchy of respect, too. That could be. Yeah, I mean, they're saying, like, if, if, we're, if I'm being honest, I'm not going to lie about what I said to the student. Mm -hmm. But if the student wasn't there, then I could just get away with saying yeah. whatever mm -hmm. I wanted. But he, he's, I mean, I, I assume the idea of the living can't contradict the living is, is if there's mutual respect and the people are of upstanding morals and are talking about a factual event and not necessarily an opinion, under those circumstances... Mm -hmm. Then the living can't contradict the living. Ah, so we have the the greater system of it too. Um, other thoughts, other questions. So you mentioned earlier that we're going to hear about a tractate called Idiot. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we just put a little flag next to this idea that he's specifically talking about how to be a witness. Okay. Uh, Very good. Because uh, we're going to see Eduyo later on. Cool. Good connection to make. So let's hold that flag about there. What is the nature of witnessing in this sense? Who wants to continue reading? In the meantime, <clears throat> meantime Rabban Gamaliel, as the Nasi, was sitting and lecturing. And Rabbi Yehoshua, all the while, was standing on his feet because Rabban Gamaliel did not instruct him to sit. He remained standing in difference to the Nasi. This continued for some time until it aroused great resentment 
against Rabban Gamliel. And all of the people assembled began murmuring and said to Chutzpah, the disseminator, stop conveying Rabbi Gamliel's lecture. I'm going to let our rabbinic intern, Daniel, uh, tell us a little bit about the disseminator, and that is a tradition. I'm going to be right back. I want to sign him to the crowd outside. So there's this interesting idea that for, these are oral traditions, right, and oral conversations, but they're quoting first Mishnah and then debating it. The problem is we don't have a written Mishnah. So who, therefore, memorized perfectly these verses, they were the disseminators, right? They were students who, in the tradition, are not your sharpest student, but they're your noble and loyal student who listens to every word, right? There's even some conversations saying this could have been a chance where the student with some form of autism had an opportunity to still be a part of the baby drush because at that point they have the ability to memorize with perfection and repeat it back to you but not include their own commentary. And that's important here, right? Because you need someone who can actually just repeat it back to you so that Rabbi Gamliel can then, Rabban Gamliel can then give his feedback. Now who's he disseminating it to? So the group of students are sitting, Rabbi Gam, uh, Rabban Gamliel is sitting, and someone is spouting off the Torah and the Mishnah. Then Rabban Gamliel gives some sort of uh, teaching on it. So this person is literally going through and giving the, the text that Rabbi Rabban Gamliel is discussing. And here they stop him from giving the text, which then stops Rabban Gamliel from being able to teach. So he's not disseminating to some outsiders what was said in this room. No, rather he's disseminating Torah to the people in the right. room. No, I didn't understand that. Yeah. So. Explain the whole stenographer nature of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really quite cool and a, a cool way of looking at the inclusion yeah, like of a different people. Mm-hmm. It, yes, except instead of reporting it, their like their job there is like there would be a, a student for each section. Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to talk about the Mishnah Brachot? You know, bring bring Chutzpah uh, out. He knows one through eight. And then someone else knows nine through fourteen. Like so, there was multiple students whose jobs were to memorize perfectly these teachings and these laws in order to then have this tradition go. And so many oral traditions in other cultures are the same. Those stories are passed on. The Greek tradition, especially, right. the yeah. stories are passed from generation to generation. And this exactly. gives us some type of insight as to how that might have been done with such accuracy. Right. You mentioned previous to sort of. That this was the oral Torah. That this right. was the, yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. And, and so as Judy says, it, it probably wasn't unique to the Jews. No. No. Um, so one of the other things that I'll point out, and I thank you for filling everyone in on what that role was, um, Chutzpit himself was known as a great orator and was actually one of the ten martyrs who was killed by the Romans. Um, he was one of the noteworthy ones. So he, this is the ten martyrs who were killed by the Romans, including Rabbi Akiva. Um, it's one of the really noteworthy martyrdom pieces. It comes up, for instance, in the uh, Yom Kippur liturgy when we're looking at um, when we're looking at. Hang on, thank you. <laughs> when we're looking at uh, 
the various instances of martyrdom throughout Jewish history. If you look in that section, we actually will see the ten martyrs there. You can see it in your machzor when Yom Kippur rolls around. Yeah. So Kuzbit, though, is not himself a rabbi. He's not necessarily learned on the argumentation. His, his only, his knowledge is just the words strictly as they are in the Torah. So they pick guys with a photographic memory. The guy's a student. Or, yeah. yeah, and they're students of these rabbis. Yeah. He could be, maybe become a rabbi himself at a later date, just at this point. He's simply a student. He's a student who's who has this memorization. Yeah, that's what it seems like. There's an interesting contrast here. We have Elazar ben Arach, who was described in a different text as being like a seed, a perfectly sealed cistern. They contrast him with another rabbi, um, Eliezer ben Hyrkanos, who they call a ma'ayan mitgaber, an ever-flowing spring. And they say these are two qualities that are uh, particularly prized. But there are rabbis who have that quality of being a perfect container, a perfect vessel for whatever Torah it is they've held, even if they're not the ones who are the, uh, the ma'ayan, the one who is generating uh, the material in that way. So it's not unrabbinic uh, to have this role either. Could be a rite of passage. Could be. Part of earning your so, any other questions? Otherwise, we're going to continue forward. Because I want to make sure we have plenty of time at the end to discuss the whole big picture of it. So, uh, yeah. One quick question. Um, mm-hmm. this, this is all one event that, like, this hasn't, we haven't jumped on. Okay. Correct. We're all still... I'm, I'm not splicing together multiple texts. You've seen me do that before and jump around a little bit. This is all totally sequential. Um, good question. So, who wants to pick up reading? In their murmuring, they said, How long will Rabban Gamliel continue afflicting him? Last year on Rosh Hashanah, he afflicted him. Rabbi Gamliel ordered Rabbi Yehusha to come to him carrying his staff and bag on the day in which Yom Kippur occurred, according to Rabbi Yehusha's calculations. Regarding the firstborn, in the incident of Rabbi Tzitzkat, sorry, he afflicted him just as he did now, and forced him to remain standing as punish- punishment for his failure to defend his differing opinion. Here, too, he is afflicting him. Let us remove him from his position as Nazi. Okay. By the way, an interesting thing, Nasi in modern Hebrew is still the word used for a president of a country. So, yeah, what were you saying? Well, my, my first, uh, I guess my first question is what the incident, what the, the firstborn in the incident of Rabbi Zadok refers to. Good question. Um, I don't have that story on the tip of my tongue. Okay. Um, so I'm not able to fill in a whole lot more. But there was a previous episode. That but was there was an incident of this. So are they saying that Rabbi Rabban Gamliel has this habit of afflicting other rabbis? I'm going to, yep, and I'm going to up the ante. This is one of the pieces I was telling Daniel about that I found about Rabban Gamliel outside of our preparations. Um, he had he was of poor health in his lifetime and was noted for that. And he adopted the custom of teaching while seated because standing was too afflicting for him. So he is intentionally doing something to other people that uh, that would be a great affliction to him, more so than for most even. So he's sadistic. Good question. Does yeah. that mean contradicting? Contradicting. Say more. Well, I'm just wondering if the affliction is to disagree, to 
to create some chaos. The affliction seems to be to make him stand there while he uh, does whatever. Yeah, while he berates them or leaves him on his feet. Yeah, go ahead. This, this little paragraph also seems to paint um, Rabbi Yehoshua as maybe a bit of a coward because he's mm. being afflicted for refusing to defend his opinions, not for having differing opinions. Had he, he, but for having differing opinions and then refusing to stick to his guns and just sort of rolling over as soon as, you know, the rabbin says, no, you're wrong. And the mm-hmm. guy goes, oh, well, I can't argue because the rabbin said this. Right. So it, I'm wondering if, if, you know, maybe Gamliel just sort of sees Yahushua as a, a bit of a, a, a coward or not, you know, necessarily being worthy in some way and thus is continuously afflicting him because great reading he he won't defend himself a lovely reading again this gets back to that what is your movie version i like that version a lot that's could be he is an interesting guy we also have about Ravan gamliel uh that he was an advisor to king agrippas of jerusalem and a teacher of the gospel paul he appears in the new testament as a figure too oh wow yeah so he's a fascinating guy who seems to be in a lot of different conversations at this time. Um, and no one stands up to Gamaliel individually. That's what it seems like. No right. one individually so, takes so on Gamaliel. give Yeshua a little bit of credit, <laughs> the only chance we have right now is everyone else making a decision together. So, so Gamaliel's a pretty intimidating figure to the other rabbis because of his knowledge and wisdom and position. And wealth and access and power. He's just got a bullying kind of Yeah. Go ahead. He also has the freedom the exact term. Mm-hmm. He has an ability to physically cause, what was it, the, the smite? Not smite, it's a... He, he can identify whether someone's being righteous in, in God's, on God's behalf. So he has this almost this ability given somehow from God uh, in, that makes him almost supernatural. Okay. So because we see a few a few characters with that in the Talmud, but his his is a just sort of like a sixth sense about righteousness. No, he does something that I'm forgetting right now. Um, okay. If you're alluding to the oven of Achnai, it's done to him. Um, he's we're going to get there actually, oh, but he's the one that actually dies as a result of what happens there. Um, yeah, no worries. It's hard to keep all of this straight. Um, and, I, you know, I read, I've read some of these stories for years and years and still mix up which character is which one. Um, yeah, so let's go there for just a moment. Do you, just, just a comment. It's interesting you brought up the Ovens of Yes. I barely remember that story, but it's similar, very similar in a, in, to this story, as I recall. It very much was, you know, is it is it kosher or not kosher? And somebody says it is, and somebody says it isn't. And I won't I won't give away the ending, but uh, <laughs> the feeling it's going to be so very much like for those of you who time. so the, for those of you who missed the oven of Achnai, it starts out with a dispute between Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanos and all the sages. And he, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanos keeps saying, if the halakha agrees with me, then let all of this wondrous quasi-magical stuff happen. Let the aqueduct flow backwards. Let the carob tree step up and walk itself down the street. Let the ba- walls of the Beit Midrash fall in. And Rabbi Yehoshua challenges the walls and say, when, uh, when scholars are in a debate, what right do you have to interfere? So the walls go halfway in deference to both of them. Then he says, if... The halakha agrees with me, then let 
the, let God prove it. And this voice, um, the daughter of, an, of a voice, this bat kol, rings out and says, Rabbi Eliezer is right about everything. Why do you people argue with him? And <laughs> Rabbi Yehoshua is the one who rises to his feet and says, Lo he, he says that he quotes Deuteronomy saying that the Torah is not in heaven, that it's with the people. Um, challenging God. God responds, we, Rabbi Nathan asks Elijah the prophet, what did God do in that hour? Because we have Elijah who seems to go back and forth between God and the people, dwelling kind of in between. Um, and uh, Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Elijah says to him, uh, God laughed at that time, saying, my children have defeated me, my children have defeated me. That was the first part of it. The second part of it was this whole piece all about uh, excommunicating Eliezer ben Hyrcanos after that, that they took all of his stuff that he declared kosher and burned it and excommunicated him from the Beit Midrash. Rabbi Akiva was the one who delivered the bad news, and he said, I have to do it lest some great harm happen. Um, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanos, his sister, sorry, his wife, is the sister of Rabban Gamliel. And she's keeping him from praying a special prayer every day, and she miscalculates which, pra- which time this prayer happens, and he does it without her seeing, and Rabban Gamliel um, is killed. She then asked, he then asks, how did you know my prayer was going to kill your brother? And she said, we have a tradition in my family, Rabban Gamliel's family, all gates are locked except those of wounded feelings. And this is the end of the Oven of Achman. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, that, that recap really actually puts into perspective uh, Rabbi Gamliel, because Rabbi Yehoshua was willing to stand up to a divine voice from the heavens, but he's not willing to stand up to God. <laughs> but remember, he stands, up to, he stands up to God saying the Torah is with us. And just to point out to maybe kind of get back into this piece, there's a lot of respect for the for the structure uh, and the system within the baby Josh. Mm-hmm. Rabban Gamliel is in charge. Okay. Therefore, Rabbi Yeshua, because that's within Earth, right? That's on this planet. Yeah. That's within the system that they bought into. He shows respect for that system. Something you disrespected God is that he said you you you, you change the rules, right? So that's why he stands up. So I think actually he listens to Rabban Gamliel because it's within the rules. It's within his power. To do so, now we're seeing that they want that to change. They don't like that leadership model. Yeah. Much. So the other thing I will say about it is he quotes a voice, lo, uh, a verse, loba shemayim he. By their rules, if you can hang your argument on a verse of Torah, that's what reinforces it. Note that he doesn't have a verse here that he to stand on. He's basically going with his own reasoning, but he can't back it up with Torah in the same way he could during the oven of Achnai. So. Um, a lot of backstory on all of these characters that I think is totally worth keeping um, in the fronts of our minds during this. Rabbi Yoshua, as a note about him, he actually was, uh, it was understood that he was part of a delegation that went to Rome, a delegation of Jews, and along the way he took part in debates and arguments with everybody there was, from Roman pagans to Christians, he even uh, debated Hadrian, was the legend, the emperor. So he's this figure who seems willing to stand up for the fight, so it's interesting to see him back down here. You're right to focus on that. Um, Other questions? Yeah. Just just back to the other box. I hate to jump way ahead, but that's true, but the ending is remarkably similar. Okay, so let's continue onward, and let's talk about that when we get there. So, 
We have the coup in, uh, in progress right now. Is, who wants to continue for us? Last paragraph on the first page. It was so agreed that the question arose, who shall succeed him? Shall we establish Rabbi Yehoshua in his place? The sages rejected that option because Rabbi Yehoshua was party to the incident for which Rabban Gamliel was deposed. Appointing him would be extremely upsetting for Rabbi Gamliel. Shall we establish Rabbi Akiva in his place? The sages rejected that option because Rabbi Akiva would be vulnerable. Perhaps due to Rabban Gamliel's resentment, he would cause him to be divinely punished as he lacks the merit of his ancestors to protect him. Okay. What the? Go, well, you had a great question. I want yeah, to start with like, that. Like, who were, who, were, who were Akiva's ancestors or why didn't he have it? So there's a concept that we're dealing in here called schut avot, the... Um, the weight of the ancestors, of your ancestry, of your family. Yes, your lineage, exactly. Um, Rabbi Akiva, there are a couple of different traditions about him. One is that he came from servants um, and was sort of of a lower class, that he was part of a group of servants to Kalba Savua, who was one of the rich and noteworthy wealthy people of Jerusalem, and sort of plucked out of obscurity um, with his ability. One of the other... Uh, legends, stories, narratives around it is that he is a descendant of Sisera and his ancestry wasn't even Jewish. Either way we do know that he, he spent the first 40 years of his life illiterate. He never started learning until he reached the age of 40 and there's a whole wonderful, beautiful story about that. But he started one letter at a time until he became the great master that he was. So regardless of which one of these origin stories you want to pick, he doesn't have this lineage. He's not part of a dynasty in the same way. And they seem to be worried that that dynastic piece, the zhut avot, would protect whoever this is against Rabban Gamliel's retaliation. Yeah, go ahead. So I actually have sort of a grammatical question. Yes. Um, and I don't know if this is how much of this is, is it the translation into English or how mm -hmm. much of this is actually in the original. But up until now, we've had this very like direct, active voice, like this person said this, this person said that, this person did this, this person did that. Mm -hmm. And now here we have this sort of like passive questioning voice where it's telling a story through questions. And what I'm wondering is in the, in the grammar in the Torah, does it, or in the, not the Torah, but the, the um, Talmud, does it have that same sort of change dramatic change in voice and is that maybe that that you know overlaying where it's like this this could be sort of that editing that happened interesting that, that creates that that bridge between the first part and sort of what I'm going to think of the second part of the story where the where the voice goes back to that very just reporting what people said so oftentimes in Talmud it is first of all very sparse so what's here is much more explanation to sort of just clarify it rather than the Talmud might have just said, um, question, who shall succeed him? You know, it could be that vague. I would have to go bring, pull up the original to see it. But it's oftentimes very sparse, and it's oftentimes grammatically very messy. I think, or my understanding is this reflects that orality of it, that this was a conversation over the centuries, but the grammar, the Aramaic grammar that these guys employ is, uh, 
nightmarish, actually. Uh, they break all of their own rules left, right, and center. Um, my rabbinical school used to teach a class in Aramaic, and they actually scrapped the class because it was too irregular. They realized you just had to spend time in their text, in their language, with their idioms, because trying to systematize it in an effective way falls apart once you're in the text. Um, so grammatically, it's pretty messy. Okay. Um, so I am reluctant to make too much of the shift in voice there in English. Are you finding anything on it? Well, so I'm trying to look. We can come back to it, too. Yeah, the Hebrew, the, it definitely takes a shift from the narrative to hearing these sages speak. But I don't. It doesn't seem to have anything on the past on the passive switch. More of just we go from hearing the setup of now seeing the real meat of the story, which is this big action they're taking. Okay. Well, suddenly there's a narrator. Well, All right. it's not just reporting action. There's somebody's voice. Who mm-hmm. Right. So before it was the sages taught, and all this is here, right. and then now it's the sages' voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that could be the stom layer that. Redactive layer. So, who wants to continue on to the, the next page? Rather, suggesting the sages, let us establish Rabbi Eliezer Ben Azaria in his place. He is wise, rich, and a tenth generation descendant of Ezra. The Gemara explains he is wise, so if Rabbi Gamliel raises a challenge in matters of Torah, he will answer it and not be embarrassed. And he is rich, so if the need arise to pay homage to the Caesar's court and to serve as a representative of Israel to lobby and negotiate, he has sufficient wealth to cover the costs of the long journeys, taxes, and gifts. So he is able to go and pay homage. And he is a tenth generation descendant of Ezra, so he has the merit of his ancestors, and Rabban Gamliel will be unable to cause him to be punished. They came to him and said, Would the master consent to being the head of the yeshiva? He said to them, I will go and consult my household. Okay, we have Elazar ben Azaria. Uh, he passes the test on all of these, that he's smart enough to be able to, and wise in Torah to be able to defend himself. He has the resources to carry out this position of Nasi, and he has the schut avot to prevent any kind of um, nastiness coming back from Rabban Gamliel. But most of all, he's smart enough to say, I have to ask my wife. <laughs> and then he also says, I have to ask my wife. This is a remarkable thing. This is unusual. Um, this new person asking their family. Uh, this is about class. A lot of this discussion, isn't it? Say more. Say more? Yeah, tell me more. What, what, you're, what you're thinking about well, class here. You see the, the class thing when they're trying to decide uh, when they're rejecting Akiva. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see the class thing here, even though it's an 18-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, because he's essentially nobility because of who Ezra was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, in 10 generations... There must be thousands of descendants of Israel. <laughs> you know, half the population has got some kind of... Ezra. Who? Is he's rich, and I think right. that's significant. And smart. That's, that's they might not all be that sharp either. Right. Who is Ezra? Real quick. Oh, Ezra's the guy that brought the uh, Jews back from Persia. Perfect, exactly. Ezra and Nehemiah were the ones that brought these big Jewish communities, these exilic communities after the destruction of the first temple. The Babylonians who had destroyed and exiled them were conquered by the Persians, and the Persians allowed them to return to the land and build the second temple. Ezra, the scribe, Ezra and Nehemiah, were two of the leaders who led this return to the land. So... And he's got a uh, biblical book named after him as well. So clearly, this is a heavy hitter. Um, yeah, that's an interesting analogy. Um, it's the father of his country. 
I, I would suggest that probably David and Solomon are more Washington type figures, perhaps. But they're the ones that establish sort of the united monarchy from the 12 tribes. So I would suggest sort of in that birth of the nation place, they might fill that. I don't know, if somebody were to cause some kind of a terrible calamity to befall the United States and we all had to go somewhere and then come back, uh, those leaders might be the ones who we, we would think of as being like Ezra and Nehemiah, the ones who lead the return in that way. Um, other questions about this particular paragraph? It's, it's, I, I think it's remarkable after revisiting the oven of Achnai to think about this divine punishment coming through and Rabban Gamliel's sister saying that we have this tradition in our family that these things can cause damage in this way. Um, that's, it's interesting, the way, at least to me, that part is particularly resonant. Who power wants... What's that? Power the power of words, for sure. Who wants to continue? Okay. His consulting. That he went and consulted with his wife and she said to him, there is room for concern. Perhaps they will remove you from office just as they removed Rabban Gamliel. He said to her, let a person use an expensive glass one day and let it break tomorrow. She said to him, you have no white hair. It was inappropriate for one so young to have the sages. And the Gemara relates that day he was 18 years old. And a miracle transpired for him, and 18 rows of hair turned white, one for every year. This explains why Rabbi Elzar ben Azariah said, I am as one who is 70 years old, and he did not say, I am 70 years old. Okay, questions about this piece. People understand that metaphor he's using, use an expensive glass, you know, don't be afraid to, yeah, okay. Um, Don't get too attached to physical, like to nice things like it, it doesn't matter to him necessarily if he's the leader or not because he could be wealthy one day and for the next he could be the leader one day and just a a member of the 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 rabbis the next sure live in the moment in that way yeah. um absolutely other he's secure yes he is secure he's that's the other thing about being deposed he doesn't care right now, a note I want to make about that 70 years, there's a tradition that 70 years is, the full, is a full lifespan in a lot of the rabbinic tradition. So, for instance, if you turn 83, a lot of people will say you can have a second bar or bat mitzvah uh, because that's, again, a full life plus 13 years. So, <laughs> of course, Moses lived to 120, so, you know, we've all got something to aim for here. Um, other questions about that that piece? How many times has someone been, you know, excited to mask the youth, right? Especially in the sages, this idea of masking youth. Like here's this guy who's been, but they, he they take him from eighteen to seventy, right? It's not there's nothing in between either. Yeah. Like they they he skips the entire this this idea of the entire middle piece of adulthood. Mm-hmm. It's kind of absurd, isn't it, Daniel? And, right. And Nick, because everybody knows the guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, they it's already knew him, yeah. yeah. It's, it's almost as, as it's not if... like he's a stranger. Or right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as if that miracle was on his side of an argument telling his wife, it'll be okay. Yeah. Right? But you don't have gray hair. Well, now I have gray hair. You, don't have, you know what I mean? Like it's Because <laughs> you're right. Everyone, they picked him. Right. So it's not like they're like, oh my god, we totally forgot. Mm-hmm. Yesterday yeah, was your 1920 all the way to 70th birthday, right? <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, so so 
What I'm sort of saying is basically his wife is, is concerned that he won't be respected because he doesn't have just literally the years under his belt. Yeah. And that what he's saying to her when his hair turns white is, you know, it's the knowledge and the respect that I can get from my my birth, from my power, from my wealth, and most importantly from my wisdom mm-hmm. that is all that really matters. Because obviously he's already incredibly highly respected at an incredibly young age. Yeah. So it seems like perhaps some of that wisdom, the resource, all of these things that make him great um, are able to sub in for some of that life experience. And yet, um, clearly the appearance matters. Mm-hmm. Clearly the appearance is important. In I addition. Mean, hey, there's a reason why in every society, when you're an important leader, you have this <clears throat> clothes or some aspect to indicate your stature. Sure. You know, it, it, you don't find, your appearance is very important to humans. You don't find many hunchback rabbis. <laughs> you don't find too many ultra-obese rabbis uh, because appearance counts. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. Um, so be careful. <laughs> yeah, sure. PR, you know, would you join a temple that had a guy that was hunchbacked and, and, and way overweight? So... I, I couldn't care less. I know, but a lot of people do. That's true. What does this room think? I wouldn't care. I, I, I studied with rabbis, rabbis who <laughs> represented all kinds of look. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter. Once they they made their thinking, mm-hmm. also physical appearance was much more important back then. Yes. Because especially it in a Roman, too. yeah, but also in a Roman controlled area, the Romans viewed the physical body as the like, to them the physical body was more important than the spirit. But find out here. In, in an ironic way, mm-hmm. there was a time in this temple, and I won't mention any names, but we had a rabbi who had Hollywood-style good looks, okay. and he didn't last, like about two. Not years. because of that. No, no, not because of that, but it went with it in a way. I remember the rabbi too. So <laughs> well, unless we speak, engage in any kind of lashon hara against any other rabbis, you know. Yeah, sure. Say that that. Uh, Looks can also be deceiving. That too. As in the case of our one who is like 70, but is not in fact, is 18 in fact. I like the whole idea of white hair. There you have it. Having great distinguishment from it. Absolutely. A good thing to hold. I love it. Who wants to continue for us? It was taught that, it was taught that, that, taught that on that day they dismissed the guard at the door and permission was granted to the students to enter. Instead of rebounding on the selectivity of students, the new approach asserted that anyone who seeks to study should be given the opportunity to do so. As Ravon Gamiel would proclaim and say, any student whose insides are not like his outside will not enter the study hall. Okay, questions about this? Yeah. So I, I get that in the first part, it's just sort of saying that, that there's a sort of changing of, of theory of exclusivity to inclusivity for learning. Mm-hmm. I had no idea when we read this in the groups what that line about any whose out insides are not like his outsides and not in the study hall meant. I had no no grasp of what that metaphor represents. I would you know, suggest go ahead. It, it, it's like 
the philosophy changes when they go to the young guy. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, 100%. So, and, and I get that from that first, like, two sentences. That last sentence, I don't... To stick with your question, so insides matching their outsides, I think the idea here, I would suggest, is that one's ideas and theories and learning and all of that should match one's action and deeds and what one does externally. Um, that that's what Rabban Gamliel was saying. And he seemed to use as, that as a litmus test to keep people out. Uh, what we see with taking the guard off the door is that that no longer applies. You know, see, this is a reflection mm -hmm. of uh, um, Elazar's security. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mind having a lot of people there when the other guy thought it was a big deal to be exclusive. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, let's continue on because we're going to Did you want to add something? Question. Yeah. Are we sure that they're proving that Rabbi Gamliel was wrong? Or are they proving that even once the door is opened and the students flooded in, he still recognized that those who were interested in this level of engagement to Torah happened to be those whose insides matched their outsides? That he had spent all this time being so worried about this, but that genuine desire to learn and study might have, in fact, been enough of a threshold. Yeah. So that question of whether he was right or wrong unfolds over the next couple of paragraphs. So let's. Yeah. So who wants to continue reading? And then we'll get to that. Well, this next graph is clearly tied to the previous. The Gemara relates that on that day several benches were added to the study hall to accommodate the numerous students. Rabbi Yochanan said, Abba Yosef ben Dostai and the rabbis disputed this matter. One said 400 benches were added to the study hall, and one said 700 benches. So, um, okay. Thousands of people come in. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> so the, the actual content of that paragraph seems really straightforward. But some, the question that I have is, why does it say that Rabbi Yochanan said that ben, that, that Yosef ben Gostai and the rabbis dispute this matter? Why, why is it important who is repeating this conversation as opposed to just saying Abba Yosef then Dostai and the rabbis disputed this matter. Is there a reason that they then bring another, like, a third party in who's just saying, this other group of people said this? Because other parts of the Talmud, it just says this person and that person argued. So it must have been important along this one. Uh, by mentioning who you heard this from and who you learned it from, you anchor yourself in the rabbinic tradition in a certain way. It orients you in the entire discussion in a very specific way. So it must have been important. It puts, it anchors Rabbi Yochanan in this discussion and it anchors him as having learned this from Abba Yosef ben Dostai versus the rest of the sages. Okay. So this is a very rabbinic thing to do, is sort of anchor themselves by the chain of transmission, which speaks to the orality of it. Okay, because I know Yochanan is a... That's the other trigger point. He's important, which means that this dispute's important. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you didn't quote that Yochanan brought up with these guys, said it, maybe they would just brush over it as, who cares? Well, just some credence. well we still do that. Yep. We still quote our source, mm -hmm. and it gives credence or not. And I would suggest that who it is, if we know other stories about that person, like we know that whole backstory about Rabban Gamliel and the Oven of Achnai. So the reason I retold that very quickly was so that we have that information on why it's important that we hear about this tradition, why it's important that Rabban Gamliel's upset might go zap him if the guy doesn't have the proper zhut, a vote. So those pieces, those layers uh, sometimes come into play as well. Tom, did you have something you wanted to... I just wondered who, what an Abba is in this context. 
that's probably the guy's name, Abba Yosef. Abba literally means father, um, but some there are figures who are named Abba so and so. Good question. Um, uh, not necessarily, because there are a lot of folks who may not have. May could be there are a lot of folks who don't necessarily have or use that title of rabbi who are very much part of this. Um, like we had Chutzpit earlier on in the uh, in the text as an example. So there are other characters. Um, Bruria, that the famous woman in the Talmud stories, is another one who clearly wasn't a rav in their context, but uh, gets to play at their table. All right, so. Let's continue on. Does somebody want to take those last two together? We'll just go right to the end. When he saw the tremendous growth in the number of students, Robert Gamaliel was disheartened. He said, perhaps, heaven forbid, I prevented Israel from engaging in Torah study. They showed him in his dream white jugs filled with ashes. The Gemara comments that the dream was only shown to him to ease his mind so that he would not feel bad. It was taught that, tra- that tractate Ebu Yot was taught that day, and everywhere they say that there was no halakha whose ruling was pending in the study hall that they did not explain and arrive at a practical halakha conclusion. And even Robin Gamliel did not avoid the study hall for even one moment. Okay, so I want to explain this piece about the white jugs. Yeah. This is supposed to be an allusion to he had a dream where the outside of these things was really pretty and the inside was useless. The outsides were these pretty white containers and they were containing ashes. So then this question is, does that dream say that Ravan Gamliel was actually right? That all of these people who were coming in were, you know, they might have looked fine on the outside, but they were actually vacuous. Uh, And then the Gemara sort of uh, has its own rejoinder to that, saying, look, the only reason he had that dream was to feel better about it. Uh, it's a good question. Go ahead. So I, I interpret the line about Rabban Gamil being disheartened. Not that there was this tremendous growth of students, but he was disheartened that he had prevented this growth of students. And he's actually now very great. He's, he's He's grateful to see this ex- this explosion of study and just feels bad that he held on to maybe this old-fashioned yeah. exclusivity. What have I done? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What have I done? And now, and now this is going to this younger generation represented by this 18-year-old super rabbi and his <laughs> you know 700 benches worth of new students. Mm-hmm. And that Robin Gamliel is so like touched by seeing this explosion that. that I mean, it makes it sound that last paragraph that he didn't normally go to the study hall and help, like, engage directly with people. And that that entire time, he was down there, like, on the floor. So there was some humility. Yeah. I want to suggest that he was probably part of the study hall more regularly in in that we see that with him waiting for the shield bearers to come in so he can make this big spectacle about it. But what's remarkable is that he was deposed and thought that he, and on top of that, thought that he had been keeping people from Torah. So he's brought pretty low by this story, and yet he still remains part of it. He keeps going by there. He doesn't back out of the rabbinic project, uh, which is fairly noteworthy. To have someone be disgraced in those two ways, both you know, have this coup against them, and then come to the conclusion on their own that they were keeping all of these great students from Torah, you could see him as being brought pretty low by this, and yet it doesn't seem to stop him from continuing there. That's right. He didn't enter into the discussions and disagree as he did in previous meetings. Ah, 
It's just saying he didn't avoid it for a moment, but he was not necessarily discussing. Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, disagreeing, which is what he had done prior to that. Interesting. He's no longer the authority, so he doesn't have to agree or disagree. But I think the purpose was no, discussion. He's not the judge making the ruling or the president signing the executive order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not up to him anymore. No, but isn't it up to everyone there to agree or disagree with one interpretation or the other interpretation? I don't think they have to take a stand. So they have to discuss it, and this was all peace and harmony. No, but if there's, if there's a thousand people there, like with 700 benches, there would be. They can't all be discussing it. I want to suggest that what the two of you is, are talking about right now is the central tension of this. Yeah. Uh, this tension between how democratic is this yeah. or how elite is this? It's sort of a big question that is the central piece of it. And we see it with the white jars and the ashes. Is that just to make Gamliel feel better or was he right in the first place? You know, was he correct to keep it an exclusive elite institution in terms of what they were able to perform? Or was it wrong? The Gemara saying, no, they only showed it to him to feel better. The text itself seems conflicted on this whole dynamic as well. Go ahead, Robert. Well, this, maybe there's no connection, but this reminds me, this smackdown, so to speak, of this uh, rabbi reminds me of another story we studied, of the, the guy went off to the cave to, mm. you know, um, to uh, study, 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 comes out of there and he gets smacked down for it. Mm-hmm. That's right. We have the same sort of hyper piety that we had with Shimon Bar Yochai. He comes out of the cave and he sees somebody performing menial work before Shabbat, you know, somebody actually making a living, and his fury that somebody is taking just a minute not to study Torah, in his righteous fury and piety, he starts incinerating things. Um, we see, yeah, and and he gets sent back in the cave again for his probation. Wrong, wrong thing to do. Yeah. It, 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 it seems like it's sort of that story all over again. We uh, do have this danger of this anti-elitist um, thread and this pro-democratic thread that's come up for in, in an elite institution. Absolutely, yes, elite institution. there's a tension. Isn't that the essence of rabbinic Judaism as opposed to the priestly Judaism? Say more. Well, Expand a little bit. No, the the priests. Mm-hmm had got their authority from their bloodline. Yep. And uh, uh, the rabbis got their authority because they came from the people and they were and, and they had merit. It's more of a meritocracy. It's more like America compared to the House of Lords in England. Uh, or something of that sort. Right. You know? And uh, uh, very different places, very different approaches. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair that's point. That's the evolution of, of, of Judaism in the rabbinic era. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely it's, it's a fair like point. This temple is, you know, the temple goes on, the rabbis come and go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Um, so I, I something I, I thought was, was very uh, interesting was in the last paragraph, there's that line that says, everywhere they, they say that there was no halakha, whose ruling was not basically explained, did not arrive at a practical conclusion. Because the whole point of the Talmud is to show us sort of the conclusions that were reached, but also the dissenting opinion. 
And it seems like this was like this this explosion of uh, new ideas and new understanding and new learning amongst the 700, 400 or 700 benches of new students. Mm -hmm. And for me, the sort of, you're talking about the movie version, is, you know, I sort of pictured like maybe King's College in, in Oxford, mm -hmm. and you have this stuffy old, you know, master who's been there for 60 years, and some, you know, young upstart sort of shows them the error of his ways that, that, that instead of these 10 guys sitting around a table that they could bring in new ideas and new blood and that everyone's sort of a little happier and a little more prosperous and a little bit more knowledgeable at the end with this changing of the old guard to the young guard. Mm. Yeah. Um, That's kind of the thing there. And yeah. it seems to me to sort of be the theme of, of like this newness of, of, a, of a new like continuation of the rabbinic tradition, mm -hmm. but with the bizarre sense of chronology and all of that in the Talmud, mm -hmm. uh, how much difference is there in the way things are done before this story and after the story, or does that is that not a factor? So I don't know that this story is necessarily held as like the big changing point. I think it is worth though holding on to just how new rabbinic Judaism was. If we hold on to the fact that the temple's destroyed in the year 70, 70, 70 something, 70, um, we're looking, we're before the year 135, we're before the Bar Kokhva revolt when all of this was, when so much of this was destroyed and Rabbi Akiva was martyred and Chutzpit was martyred. So, we're less than a century out from the sort of defining, marking point of rabbinic Judaism. So I think there's an interesting comment in this that um, that this project had not yet ossified, that it wasn't ready to ossify into something that was too firm at this point. It was still in its innovative stage in that way. It's still early. Um, this is a, a ways off, centuries away from the canonization, from the redaction of the whole Talmud. Um, and we're even a ways off, we have to be a ways off from the redaction of the Mishnah in the year 220. So it's interesting that this isn't a point that seems conducive to that kind of stabilization, to that kind of, um, I don't know, becoming rigid in terms of this is exactly the canon, this is what we're putting out, that it's just too early for that. It still seems to be in motion. At that time, can you clarify yes. that paragraph? Yeah, I just want to because I'm having trouble when I read it. Mm -hmm. That day was taught. They when they taught at Yot, mm -hmm. they came to no halakhic conclusions. They came. There was no halakha whose ruling was pending that they didn't explain and arrive at a conclusion. So they resolved all of their halakhic difficulties. Right. No halakha whose ruling was pending the study hall that they did not explain and arrive at a practical halakhic conclusion. Yeah. So on the day that a new person takes over mm -hmm. who was put into power by witnesses witnessing something that was going wrong, mm -hmm. they found all the halakhic answers they needed to an entire book about On testimony, testimony well, and like witnessing. The president comes in and issues 25 executive orders the first day on a job. I didn't read it. very sorry. I didn't read it that it was the leader that was responsible. I read that it was the sort of, hey, we let in these people that previously were considered the great un uh, unwashed masses. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they turn out to be, or the result turns out to be, 
incredibly good. This tremendous collective clarification around halachic disputes. It clarifies a huge amount that was unclear before. Um, regarding witnesses and testimony, the people who can give, who can bear witness in this sense, that whole section. Um, so it's interesting that they find it noteworthy to mention that the witnessing part of it is integral to the conclusion. That it's taught that on that day, that was the day they did Eduyot. Um, Davka, that they had all of these people who got to be part of the project and see in and be part of it who were barred before. Other was Eduyot particularly difficult to understand or something? That was what I was sort of wondering when I read this. Was it like, oh man, they tackled the most difficult thing and it was all clear? Well, the way I read it, and I could be, this is just the way I first read it, is that Eduyot is about the witness and testimony. And these guys who sat in this insular group all the time with each other, had no idea what it was. They, they, didn't, they had no ability to rule on this idea of witnessing something happening and, and, and bearing testimony because they were constantly together and not engaging the rest of the world. And you bring in this new, fresh perspectives, and they actually have some form of authority to speak on witnessing something, right? And, and, and that side of it. So it's almost as if this was a tractate that in their elitist you know, pedestal, they couldn't have actually engaged well, in it, it also was a matter of who had standing to testify, as I understand this. And, you know, I, I don't know the contents of this tractate that's mentioned here, but um, there's an analogy there was a time in this country where women couldn't testify in court. Mm-hmm. Their testimony was considered worthless. Same with blacks, and so on. That changed. There were times, or rather in Orthodox communities, women st- still can't serve as adim, as witnesses, in rabbinic court matters. So for signing a ketubah where you have two adim, two witnesses, um, those wouldn't be able to be women in a lot of Orthodox communities. Um, so, and they wouldn't be able to be somebody who's prior to the age of bar mitzvah or the like. There are a bunch of rules about adim and aduyot um, that I'm not even going to get into here. But you're right that it is a particularly obtuse piece. And I think it's worth noting that in addition to being obtuse, there's a lot of Talmud that's obtuse. Um, that there's something to the fact that they brought in all of these people who are out in the world witnessing what's going on uh, to actually to actually uh, to, to bring a greater truth to it. Uh, that there was a limit to how much they were going to know about witnesses and witnessing when they don't witness anything. When they sit at their tables and their benches and argue with one another, they're not necessarily in the world. It's part of the tension of this. Um, but I want to conclude this year and this story by saying that really to me that's what this series is all about. It's about pulling the guard off, pulling the bar up, and throwing open the, the doors to everybody, to Talmud. That this isn't something that it's important, that this isn't something that only happens in the rarefied academies and rabbinical seminaries and yeshivot. That this is something that you all own. It is your heritage, your legacy. Um, and so if this series can do one thing, I would hope that it opens up the doors for all of you to own this and to bring your experiences and your voices to this great rabbinic dialogue that we have seen unfold over the three years here, but through all all of the centuries and all of the stories and 
all of those who become our traveling companions. Again, there's no such thing as early or late in Torah. And so Rabbi Akiva continues to argue these things with us. And Rabban Gamliel lives through all of these with us. And Rabbi Yehoshua is alive and well in our world to uh, take part in it. And so I'm glad that the doors are open for all of you to sit at the table with them as well. So thank you for taking part in all of this fantastic learning. And I look forward to continuing next year.